Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Winning as Women, powered by the Compete Network, where we spotlight the best sellers, revenue leaders, and coaches to unpack the stories and lessons that brought them to where they are at today. I'm your host, Jody Geiger, and we've got a special follow-up episode for you today. Last episode, we caught up with Jordana Zeldin, co-founder of The Practice Lab. She's changing the way that we sell by teaching us all how to practice. The Practice Lab believes that sellers should practice their skills like athletes do. It's such a simple concept. So simple, though, that I think most of us overlook it and we don't practice. We expect to naturally be good at selling, and it turns out most of us are leaving money on the table. Last episode, Jordana humanized selling for us. She talked about authenticity, how to overcome nerves, and why practice matters. Make sure to go back and listen to that episode if you missed it. And we have an exciting episode for you today. Jordana is back to answer questions from our listener community. So Jordana, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me back. Excellent. And hello as well to producer Ben. If you listened to our last listeners Q&A episode, you'll remember him. His smooth radio voice is back to charm us as he will help us by teeing up questions for our community. Um, actually, sorry, sourced from our community. Thank you, Jody. Hello, Jordana. Nice to see you. Some really great questions from uh, from the listeners. So thanks everyone who submitted the questions. You do have a radio voice. <laughs> It's good to hear that the $18,000 I spent on broadcasting school have really uh, started to <laughs> pay dividends here. So I'm glad. I also have a radio voice today, I think, because I have a, a cold. So my, my voice sounds gravelly. <laughs> so I'm trying to keep up with you, Ben. All right. Yeah, what's the first question? Okay. So first question comes to us from Mia Krzyzewski. And she says, when I'm in the moment on a sales call and I start to feel nervous, I quickly get in my own head and think, uh, this isn't working. Then she starts to scramble and fall apart. So the question is, how does one talk themselves down in a moment like that? That's a really good question. There are a number of things that come to mind for me, but one that people often forget is uh, to breathe. <laughs> I don't know if you found this, Jody, but like sometimes I'll notice that I think we t we talked about this last time, but like, you know, people often think that they have to be different than who they are in order to sell really effectively. And one of the the actual like physiological things that I often notice when someone is like not on the phone with a prospect and then suddenly they get on the phone with a prospect, you know, they sound pretty different than their actual selves. And oftentimes it's because they're holding their breath because they're so uncomfortable and so nervous and they've got so many balls to keep in the air as you do when you're selling. And when you breathe into your belly and even take some breaths before a call, I found in my experience, sellers have more access to themselves and their intellect and the things that they've learned in sales training. They're more connected to themselves. And through that connection, it gives prospects an opportunity you know, and clients to, to, to feel more connected in the moment. And um, so that's like just a really small and simple thing that I think folks can pay attention to. Like, am I, am I breathing here? The same <laughs> breath actually came up for me. And what I love about breath is that the second that you even say the word, 
your focus goes to your breath and probably every single person listening there gave themselves that moment to take a a deeper breath or be intentional about their breath. And that just, I think, roots us back into the moment and we stop being an observer of ourselves and we actually just start being here in the present moment with another human, which feels less scary. Um, And yeah, I think it's it's these uh, stress responses that we have, you know, fight, flight, uh, freeze, fawn. Uh, when we get into these moments, it's our yeah, our amygdala is taking over. Uh, we are not actually using any executive functioning. And so, what I often talk about with people is just that breath. And I try to say, what if we could create a little space for ourselves to lower the perceived threat? And so, what I mean by that is often throw it back. You know, if you get a question that you don't have the answer to. Maybe that's because the question isn't clear enough. And instead of dancing and trying to you know, find the, the right answer and failing and then feeling like you're scrambling or on stage and having forgotten your lines, is actually just to think about it and ask that clarifying question. Or if you even notice yourself in that moment where you are doing that scrambly dance and the feels like you're about to faint because everything is <laughs> becoming dark around you, which is a real feeling, right? Um, I think when you have that moment, even calling that out of just being like, hey, I'm not sure I answered that, you know, I'm answering the right question. Like, what is the, you know, what is the right question here for me to answer? And just fall back in their court so that you have that moment to give yourself the space to take that breath and come back to what is that real thing? Let me ask you two questions. So how often when you're, when you're in those moments, how often does the reality you're feeling internally totally not match the perception of of the people you're talking to. You know, I find that often when I really am in my own head and I think, wow, I messed that up or I must sound stupid or or what have you, I find that in reality that's that's not the way it's perceived. Is is there is there any value in your experience both of you that uh, to to think of it that way? Is it is it helpful at all um, or is that more of like an after the fact kind of thing? Yeah, I think that it's common for the internal psychological landscape and voices not to match how well, you know we're being perceived. However, if we feel internally that everything is a mess and we're not breathing, then it can be <laughs> can be really hard to to show up in the conversation at all. So, Jody called out a great like if you're not sure about something, if you don't have an answer, there's no expectation that it that you have to something if it's not real and authentic you can you know let a prospect know that you'll get back to them or that's a question you've not heard before or that one stumped you and and that you'll come back to them or further clarify so i think it's just important to remember like though the stakes can often feel high in selling we have to give ourselves the grace of being two human beings in an imperfect human relationship and our prospects i think if we've done a good enough job making them feel seen and heard and understood and invested in learning about what matters to them and are speaking about what we have to offer in a way that resonates and feels like it's reflective of what we've heard, um, there's a lot more leeway than we probably think. Absolutely. And I would say that people don't want to work with perfect people. I mean, we don't want to no. be in relationships with perfect people. The in The flaws and the quirks and the yeah, just the stumbling humanity and messiness of it all is actually what, in, you know, intrigues us about other people and connects us to other people. And so I think that something that I, I've heard you speak about, Jordana, often is when you're setting up a, a training um, or practice session, 
training session, practice session, same thing pretty much. There's one thing to say, this is a safe space, make mistakes. And then there's a whole other thing for you to actually, as the the leader of that session, to model yourself making mistakes and slowing down or taking time or being imperfect in your own response. And I think that sellers are all, or sorry, buyers are also not perfect at buying. They might never have done it before. And so if we're pretending to be perfect sellers and they're thinking that then they have to be this perfect buyer to match and mirror, think about how much we're hiding from each other and how much we're not actually connecting and sharing and asking. And we're walking away pretending like we know. And then how many assumptions down that road build to us, you know, being surprised when something doesn't work out. It's so true. And when we don't allow ourselves that grace, then our prospects don't feel like it's a space where they can show up in that way. It's funny, there there are two examples of just being like very, very human in my own selling that come to mind over the last couple of months. Um, we're in the midst of a conversation with a team at an amazing company for what would be you know, the largest team deal in the practice lab's history to date. And when we finished our discovery conversation with the sales leader, um, we asked him, like, are you a, a visual learner or more of like a demo as conversation? Because we don't have a deck yet, but if you're a visual learner, we'll make one. And he's like, oh, I'm such a visual learner. I really need a deck. So we worked on this deck and, and practice and, you know, did the whole thing. And then we showed up to the, uh, you know, to the demo, what would be the demo of what we were offering. And we said, so-and-so, like, just so you know. This is our first ever deck and our first time presenting what you know the, the practice lab in this way. So as you're going through, like give us your feedback. We want to know, like, want to know how the experience feels for you. And he was so glad that we took like took the extra step to to kind of sell to him in the way that he wanted to be sold. We were very transparent that this is our first time approaching it in this way. And it went beautifully. And it just created a tone where like even mistake making in our own selling of sales training was okay. And then even yesterday, we, um, you know, applications are open for the, the Q1 cohort for individual sellers of the practice lab. And uh, we tried a completely new approach on for size for our open house, where we wanted to structure it like a demo in service of sellers who were attending, seeing the very skills on display that they would be learning in the cohort. And it was the first time we had done it. And we said to all of these sellers who showed up to the open house, this is what we're trying on for size. It's the first time we've ever done it. We hope that as you watch our, you know, our um, overview of what the practice lab is all about, you will start to notice these skills that we'll be teaching in the cohort. And we want your feedback on the experience for all of you as our prospects. And it went great. So we can give ourselves that kind of permission, I think, to be in progress and to be trying things on and experimenting very transparently. Totally. I, I sometimes call that working out loud. You know, the things that we're, we think that we should be keeping quiet about bringing those forward actually can often uh, lower the, um, yeah, just the pretending that happens between people, that, that fake yeah. line of I've done this before, I have this experience. So what if you have, you haven't, you know, no one has done everything before and experienced this exact thing and seen this exact story. Uh, and that's part of it. We're learning. And I also think something that you, when you were talking earlier, Ben, or asking that question, it reminded me of the, you know, the fact that we're all the main character of our movie, but we're supporting cast of everyone else's movie. 
And so, you know, what can, and we're the ones in our bodies experiencing that rush of blood or, you know, the, that heat. And I think most times no one else is experiencing that little glitch where you have that moment from here, I'm, I'm here now to, oh, I'm seeing myself not do a great job and then back into your body again. It happens so quickly. And I think we blow it up unless you're me in elementary school where my nickname was the tomato. Um, and every oh. single time I had that moment, my face would go so bright red. Um, this one girl in particular always be like, I think the tomato has something to say. <laughs> How horrible. Kids are mean. <laughs> you know, this, um, this, this conversation actually segues really nicely into uh, the second question we have. So two of our listeners mm -hmm. commented um, on authenticity as a concept. One of the listeners said that uh, how inspiring it was to hear that uh, your sales career, Jordana, uh, has turned into an opportunity to express your full authentic self. And another, uh, another, another listener uh, mentioned that um, they've always struggled with the authenticity of sales. And especially when the product they're selling uh, could have a deleterious effect on the planet or humanity. You know, I guess just thinking of like the cost of what you're selling, you know, the impact that it has on society, on the environment. Um, and the, but, but both sort of points are bundled up into what authenticity means to sales. Um, so I'm wondering, especially when you hear that second question, Jordana, the second point about the cost of what you're selling, um, how, does, how does authenticity play into that? You know, it's such an interesting question because I, at least right now, have the good fortune of selling something I really believe in. But there was a period in my sales life when the company that I first joined as an AE really changed during my time there. And in the latter part of my tenure on the sales team, I had a lot of doubts and questions about the impact that what we were selling was really having on our customers. And that felt like a very hard hurdle to overcome. I mean, Jody, if you don't believe in what you're selling or are worried about the impact that it's having on the planet or other humans, like, can any degree of, <laughs> of sales skills like get you out of that? I don't know. No, <laughs> I don't think it can. I think what, what's interesting is that, or what, uh, maybe a distinction there that, for me at least, is that I don't have to, you know, many times in my career, I've sold things where, um, you know, I'm not the end user of them. I don't have that experience. I can't, you know, I'm not realizing the actual effect or, or value of the of the tool that I'm selling or software that I'm selling. Um but what I can get behind is the, and I have to get behind before I think I'm able to sell effectively, is understanding how it affects someone else and the, you know, and believing in uh, the value that I'm bringing and that the software is bringing to their organization. So how is it going to impact them personally? What are their, you know, actual ripple effects into their business that are going to make them look great, you know, their business operate more effectively or efficiently, allow them to accomplish and move into a future that otherwise might not have existed without that product. That's what I can get behind is that that personal connection um, into, yeah, into the change. And that can be anything. <laughs> and I think that that's the that's the line for me is I have to get hooked into 
what it's going to do and the impact of it and truly feel that myself before I can actually sell something. Hmm. But if the impact more broadly is like deleterious on the on the planet yeah. or human beings, that's it a just a can be pretty hard, I would imagine, for you even interpersonally to get behind that. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah you're not. I'm not. I'm not going to work in that or do that. That's a that's a hard no. Um, but I think in what I guess my point was, it doesn't have to be the sexiest or you know coolest or most obvious thing. You know, I sold enterprise risk management software, and compliance software. <laughs> you can't say that that's the the you know the bee's knees um, or the most applicable to everyone in the world. Uh, and yet, there's you know something that is so uh, great that you're supporting organizations in doing in terms of operating in a sustainable way or in a way that's um, going to positively impact um, the world or be compliant to whatever the regulatory um, requirements are. Right. I do think if if you if you're fortunate enough to be able to make the space to identify who you know what your values are and what matters to you, and then find a company where you can sell in alignment with your values and a space that really lights your fire and your passion. And that's where things can really take off. Totally. And I think that, yeah, I think just the, the just to put a cap on that one, um, I think what matters here is that it, it's it's personal to you. And the people that are working in the businesses that you're selling into, um, it needs to, you need to tap into what's personal to them about whatever it is that you're selling. Next question comes to us from Niraj Malani, who was very fascinated about the concept of looking at sellers as athletes and practicing more like uh, more like an athlete would, slowing things down, um, looking at specific skills and honing those as opposed to just doing a role play and saying, go for it at full speed. Um, so the question is um, simply they want to know a little bit more about how that uh, how that practice works in practice at the practice lab. I said practice way too many yeah, times. <laughs> you can never say practice too many times. No. Um, what's interesting about the cohort-based training programs is those are for hand-raising account executives who are excited about the idea of developing their skills outside of their team. And one of the interesting things about it is that it becomes an opportunity for sellers to learn alongside one another and practice alongside one another, even though they're you know, they're selling different products, right, across a range of industries. What's interesting, we found, you know, sometimes when you're on a sales team, learning on a sales team, practicing on a sales team, it can be hard to see the forest through the trees. Um, But there's a lot of value in practicing skills with someone who's not deeply familiar with your product, because so much of what we talk about is about how to, you know, relatably and humanly communicate how what you have to offer can help the person that you are speaking to who just so happens to be your prospect. And a really great way to do that um, is to speak to someone who knows nothing about your industry at all. <laughs> because if if you can find a way to bring to, to really help people to see how you help them and use language free of industry jargon um, to bring that to life, then you know you've really tapped into you know, what will probably be a universally effective way to talk about your product. So that's one of the benefits, I guess I would say about, um, I don't want to kind of overly you know, sell the cohort specifically, but just in thinking about some of the, the, you know, the interesting differentiators in practicing in a cohort environment with sellers from different teams versus on your own team. That's one that comes to mind. Yeah, I hadn't actually considered that as a benefit um, in being able to test out some of the the messaging or, or what it is that you're doing. 
but I, what I also like about that is that it also universalizes the, is that a word, <laughs> the skill uh, that we're actually practicing. It can apply in so many different scenarios to whatever product you're selling. Cause it, at the end of the day, again, it's like this human skill and this human to human connection that matters. You know, one of the interesting things about the, the skills that we choose to, to practice in the practice lab is that the, they're so effective to practice in large part because they are universal and not product specific, right? So we're talking about things like listening, or we're talking about things like teeing up effective questions so that they will land with your buyer as intended, so that they will lead to more thoughtful responses, to better conversation, uh, helping you as a, or, or helping sellers to more effectively connect the dots between what they're showing, let's say, in a demo and why it matters to their prospects. Those are skills that can be used inside and outside of selling, right, in, in a sales context and in human conversation, but are completely industry agnostic and, and deeply human, which is why um, it can be so effective to practice them with folks from different industries as well. This next question comes to us from Chris Ivey, and it's about uh, onboarding new reps. So Chris says, new reps forget most of what they learn within 90 days. How does practicing change that? Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of thoughts. One is that often the only quote unquote practice that ever happens on most sales teams happens in onboarding and then practice completely falls away. So that's something that I've noticed. The other thing I'll share is that practice can be a really, really effective way to vet candidates even before onboarding. Because mm -hmm. if you use practice in your interview process, not to for the candidate to show you how well they can sell the product, but how game they are to try things on for size, how receptive they are for feedback, that can create you know, a really good sense of whether or not they're the kind of person who has the coachability and those kind of sometimes hard to pin down soft skills that can be really challenging to, to discern in a typical interview process. Um, and then the third thing I'll say is that for teams that I've both been on and worked with that have cultures of practice, there's onboarding, right? You're getting in your reps, but then the learning never stops. And it's just understood that these sales skills are always developing in the same way that, you know, Michael Jordan doesn't stop attending practice. Tiger Woods doesn't stop practicing with his coach, right? And I think that the value of a culture of practice is less just about getting better as a seller, but it does create a pretty special environment on a team where, you know, as we've spoken about, Involved in practice is learning and risk-taking and experimentation and failure and asking for feedback. All of that stuff ladders up to a really, really incredible culture, the types of cultures where sellers want to stay and grow and, yes, where they perform at a high level as well. So those are some of the thoughts that come to mind. Yeah, that makes me think about how when you join a new company, you have the permission to not know things and so you are allowed to ask questions and make mistakes and, and practice. And then you get to a certain point where now you're ramped and you should know everything. <laughs> and that is just so wrong. Two weeks. Yeah. And the question, how do we decrease the ramp time? Like to what? Because in some ways, you know, we're, we're constantly ramping skills, right? Um, and of course, we want people to be up to speed. Yeah. to support our customers uh, in the best way possible. Uh, but there is there is something I think that needs to shift in that mindset. 
Yeah, it's like, what if we gave even the most tenured reps permission to not know everything? How would that how would that shift sales culture? Something that I've been thinking about related to that is how important it is for managers to be involved in the practice that happens in ongoing training sessions or enablement sessions. And what I mean by that is they lose that a bit of the skill of selling and then they get to sit on the sidelines and almost like watch or rate their sellers. And what a fear inducing environment that can be versus if we flipped it a bit and the managers are actually involved and on stage as well. And, you know, someone that can be picked and put in the hot seat to pitch or to demo or to handle an objection and how much that can set the stage for um, safe practice. That brings up so, so much for me because I think it's right on, Jody. You know, the first thing that I always recommend when when I in my life as a trainer before the practice lab and now in working with teams was that managers and sales leaders are not just organizing practice, they are practicing with their sellers. Um, but the other thing is, is that I've often noticed that managers are afraid to practice with their sellers because their skills aren't what they used to be. You know, maybe they were a top seller on their team and now they're a manager. And I actually feel like that is totally okay because it makes all the sense in the world because selling the, the, the sales skills are not the same as management skills and sales skills require a lot of practice to maintain. And if you're not hitting the phones day after day, they're going to get a little soft, right? Your muscles are going to get a little weak, but that's okay. You know, um, when I think about the role of, or if, if I think about, you know, professional athletes, like they have coaches and their coaches are not as skillful as they are at, at as the star athletes are at playing that sport, but they are great great coaches and athletes need great coaches and coaches need great athletes. And I think that, you know, oftentimes on sales teams, there's this misconception that like the best sellers are going to be the best people leaders and the best managers, but that's not true. We've got to just acknowledge and, you know, cards face up that they're different skills and that sometimes like a, a mediocre seller who really gets lit up by empowering their teammates and developing their people will be a better manager than the top seller ever will. So there's nothing to be ashamed of as a manager if you're an incredible manager and a mediocre seller. That's okay. And as you say, allowing yourself to show up with the skills that you have to your team, be it to, you know, with seasoned sellers or with with new newly onboarded reps can be a really powerful way to send the signals that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I feel compelled to bring up that Wayne Gretzky, who was the best hockey player of all time, his coaching record is 161 wins and 219 losses. So wow. if there's an example of why yeah. a good coach and a good player are not one and the same necessarily, I think that's it. Yeah. I remember when I first when I first started at my, uh, my, my first sales training, um, it was a very practice-based sales training company. The most powerful moment that I had there in my early days of onboarding was a practice session where I showed up with all the founders of the company and felt really nervous and the founders made mistakes and asked for feedback. And then everything changed. They telegraphed the kind of space that this was and suddenly it felt safe to learn. And it's no mystery to me why this was such a cohesive, amazing and high-performing team of coaches. Man, what, um, yeah, just what maturity or uh, growth mindset it takes as a leader to be able to make mistakes and put yourself in a position to not be perfect. That's yeah. amazing. What a skill. 
Yeah. But it's so interesting too, because like when Jonathan, my co-founder Jonathan and I started the practice lab, like I felt pretty clear that he was the avatar for the learner because he was a, a, you know, a full cycle rep and someone needed to be the expert. And so for the first couple cohorts, like I felt the need to be the, the quote unquote expert while he played the avatar. And, you know, the, the, the longer that we did this, the more I realized that if I was, you know, peddling or, or encouraging the, the kind of vulnerability that we encourage in the community that's required, like I needed to, to, to kind of drop that front, you know? And now what's been so exciting is now that we're actively also now sellers ourselves selling the practice lab, like I get to report my wins and losses and at-bats and failures and, you know, awkwardness and triumphs in the community along with everybody else. And I think everybody actually feels better for it. And I feel better not having to feel like there's a pressure for me to be the expert in the room. Man, you're inspiring me to do the same. I love it. You do that. You do this already, Jody. I feel like. <laughs> it is hard for me. I definitely, like I said last time, I'm a struggling perfectionist. So it's hard to not feel like, you know, I need to kind of keep things moving and have done it before to, you know, provide a little bit of confidence that it should be and could be done this way. Because um, we're asking people to, you know, often try something that's a little bit outside of that comfort zone, right? And they, I think they want to know, does it work? And it, then you're kind of put in the position of, yes, yes, it works. Look. Uh, and I think that's wrong. So there's something in there that I, I think I, I need to shake up. So, well, as we talk, the inspiration. Yeah. You know, but as we talked about, like everyone needs to feel held, like somebody's steering the ship, right? So it is a fine line, but it's just acknowledging that like our strengths in enabling and coaching and empowering people and pointing out small tweaks that can have a big impact are strong, right? We know how to do that. And the selling thing is freaking hard for everybody and we're doing our best too, right? Okay. Well, that was fun. Jordana, I always feel inspired spending time with you. So thank you so much for being here. And a big thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode with Jordana and submitted questions. Thank you to producer Ben. And at the end of this episode, take a second, rate our show with five stars if you loved it. We'll see you next time. Hey everyone, I'm Jason Oakley, co-host of Compared to What, a show where my friend Federico and I dive deep into the all-important tool in a product marketer's toolkit, the comparison page. We guide you through real-life examples from brands like Shopify and Big Commerce, Chromecast and Airtable, Asana, ClickUp, and more, taking a look at the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly along the way. So come watch Federico and myself on season one of Compared to What, only on the Compete Network.